morning, Grace Covenant. Good to be here with you this morning. The poinsettias are beautiful. My younger son, Seth, is here with us, and uh, he was born December 11th, 28 years ago. And on this Sunday, the pastor used him as an illustration in a children's sermon, and all the children wanted to touch the baby Jesus. <laughs> and the pastor went, oh no, oh no. <laughs> Will you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? I just want to read you a scripture which is the basis for the message this morning. Philippians chapter 2, this is the great, it's called the kenosis passage. This talks about how Jesus emptied himself when he came to earth. And we'll read verses 5 through 15. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped for, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. The interesting thing about this is we have the example of Jesus, but the Apostle Paul goes on and he tells the Philippian church that this example of Jesus is to be an example to you as to how you should live. And if you do this, the light of the world who is Jesus will shine through you as you are his lights to the world. Kind of a neat thought, but it reminds us of the necessity of living the Christian life. Of not just, you know, looking at these quaint little stories in scripture and saying, oh, isn't that nice that that happened 2,000 years ago? but to put ourselves in the position of the characters that were there at the time and say, am I living the way they lived so that the incarnate Christ can be shown through my life? And that's what this message is about. It's about incarnational living, an Advent message. Years ago, and you've probably heard this, how many of you have gone to this church for over 10 years? 
Okay, then without a doubt, Pastor McGrew has used this illustration and I will share it also. And if you say, gee, I never heard that one before, woohoo, you know, we'll, have, we'll throw a party. There was a French uh, tightrope walker by the name of Charles Blondin. Um, he was a Frenchman, and in September of 1860, on the 14th, he became the first person to cross on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. People from Canada and America came from miles away to see the great feat. So he walked across 160 feet above the falls several times. Now my wife had been, you know, we've done better than that, we went up in a helicopter. But the risk didn't seem as pronounced. And each time he did a different daring feat. Once he actually walked in a sack. Yeah. Then on stilts. Then he crossed on a bicycle. Then he did it in the dark. Then he did it blindfolded. One time he even carried a stove and cooked an omelet over the falls. And on his final pass, the large crowd walked as Blondine walked across one dangerous step after another, pushing a wheelbarrow holding a sack of potatoes. When he reached the other side, he shouted to the adoring audience, do you believe I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? A person. And the crowd enthusiastically yelled, yes, you're the greatest tightrope walker in the world. We believe. And then he asked the, particip the participants for a volunteer who will get into the wheelbarrow and allow me to push it to the other side. No one did. How many of you had heard that story before? Okay, well, some of you, all right. So Darren doesn't use the old stories, good for him, all right. But he's younger than me. At any rate, um, many of us in this room have been Christians for a while, right? We love the community, we love the Lord, um, we love the stories of the Bible, but when you get beyond that, it is so easy, isn't it, to live a detached Christianity, a let's make sure we stay out of the wheelbarrow Christianity, no matter how thoroughly God has demonstrated his ability to carry us through, we'd rather just not be put in the position where he has to carry us through. When we pray for miracles, we really don't expect them to happen. I mean, do we even think we need a miracle unless someone is dying? <laughs> Are we doing anything that extraordinary that would require supernatural power? We'd rather talk about sinners than talk to them. And when we talk to them, we'd rather talk about anything other than about Jesus Christ to them. And when we talk to them for a long time, we may find ourselves more likely to become like them <laughs> rather than they become more like us. And when we talk of our faith, we do it in cloisters because we're not willing to lose the, our security for our principles. My wife and I teach. It's a very dangerous place in that profession to speak truth many times. We talk about reaching out, 
But wouldn't it be so much more convenient if the lost would just come to us? Wouldn't that be easier? And that all shows how we live detached from real Christian living, which is Christ living through us, doing whatever he wants to do in and through our lives, no strings attached, no preconditions, no prenups. And the first thing I want you to see as I introduce the message is this, and this is in your notes, so if you want to fill in the blanks, here's an opportunity. You have three seconds to get your pencils. Three, <laughs> two, going twice, gone, all right. And that is this, a detached life is little more than a life unlived through fear of disappointment. It's a life unlived through fear of disappointment. When we're young, we kind of, you know, remember when you went to the beach when you were little? I didn't really go to the beach much unless it was along Lake Erie because when I was in the sun uh, for more than five minutes, I looked like a lobster. But a lot of you have traveled to the Outer Banks and the Myrtle Beach and, and you went to the beach and, and you wade and maybe you do a little body surfing and you play on the beach under the watchful eye of your parents and then when you mature, maybe you grab a kayak and go out or you paddle on the surface and you build a little muscle in the adventure. And when you get older, woohoo, got a powerboat. We can skim the surface any speed we want to as long as they're not looking. Um, we soak in the sun, we occasionally catch a fish, we drink our drinks, we have our parties, but it's still a surface existence. It's still a surface existence. Real adventurers don some gear, they do some training, they plunge beneath the surface, and once they're there, they see a world brimming with life. A coral reef, brightly covered fish, crustaceans that live on the seafloor. We take our oxygen, maybe a spear gun, <laughs> for protection. But there's so much more life beneath the surface that we never get to. How many of us are surface dwellers that just live in the shallows of the Christian experience? Now, the second thing I want you to note, and this, again, you can fill in your notes. That is this, enjoying the pleasures of Christianity, the benefits that have come from Christ's incarnation, is no substitute for the real, incarnational experience of Christ's life. So I want us this morning, if you're willing to go there with me for a little bit, let's take a look in our hearts. I, this is the second time I've done this. I go hard and I bang the lapel. I'll see if I can fix this if I get a third shot. But take a deeper look into our hearts than we're accustomed to looking. Let's ask ourselves if we're really taking Jesus' incarnation seriously the way Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds and uh, Simeon and Anna and, and uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias, the way all of these people had to take it seriously. All right. Let's look at four stories. Let's look at four stories. Let's, let's see if we can move from theory to practice. And we'll go from theory to practice, which is a huge gulf, and we'll take an intermediate step of seeing it modeled. Do some of you learn better by seeing it modeled? 
Do you do better following a recipe or by kind of hanging next to your mom for a while and learning how to do it, okay? Do you better, do better reading it in a book or do you learn not to cut your thumb off at the table saw by working with your dad, okay? That's what I'm trying to say, okay? And what we have here are models so we can go from theory to actual practice by seeing how it was lived and saying, I could do this. I could do this. So let's look at Mary. We've got the story of Mary, and we see the Annunciation to her. She's rather shocked. This probably happened in August or September, if you look at the Jewish calendar. Um, Gabriel literally means God is my strength, or God is my strong man. This is the same guy who interpreted the meaning of the 70 weeks to the prophet Daniel. This is the same guy who appeared to Zacharias six months earlier when he was serving in the holy place in the temple. So he's a messenger guy. He says, I stand before God. I go back and forth from him. He said that to Zacharias. Now Mary is the name of the girl. Mary is not a Hebrew name. Mary is Greek. The real name is Miriam if she took the Jewish name rather than the Greek, which we would tend to think. Miriam means bitter. So Catholics don't really like that it came from Miriam because she is blessed and beloved, okay? But Mary certainly knew both the blessings, but she also knew the bitterness, did she not? Simeon said, a sword will pierce your own heart as you see what's done to your son. Um, and those that sow in tears reap in joy, right? So it's not inappropriate what her name means. The Spirit came upon her, and the Spirit is the word for spirit. It also means wind, um, the same thing that happened in the upper room at the end. And the angel said that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. What a word in verse 35 of Luke chapter 1. And we can go there if you want to. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. So it says, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Now think about all of the imagery that is involved in Gabriel's message here. Think of how God overshadowed at creation by the Spirit of God hovering, brooding over the waters. Think of the cloud that separated the Israelites from the Egyptians as they were backed up to the Red Sea and as the seas were drying up. Okay, it was light on the Israelite side, it was cloud on the Egyptian side. Think of the cloud descending on Sinai as Moses received the law. Think of the cloud descending every day, the Shekinah over the tabernacle as Moses prayed for the Israelites and communed with God. Think of all of the meanings of being overshadowed by God of having a cloud of protection under you, and yet that cloud reversed illuminates your whole existence. It protects you, it illuminates you, 
And it says the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. That you are part of the big story of history here, Mary. This is the way that God works in your life. God's going to do something wonderful for you. Don't ask how it's going to be done. Know that it's going to be done because God is going to do it. So we've seen here, we've seen Zacharias dumbstruck by the announcement of the angel, Gabriel. We've seen Mary perplexed and pondering. And then in Luke 1.41, we see John the Baptist jumping in Elizabeth's womb. And then you see in verse 41 of that same chapter, chapter 1, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit when Mary came into the room, when Mary visited her. Now we go to Luke chapter 2, and we see the shepherds come. And they're visiting the Holy Family after the birth of Christ. It says in verses 15 to 17 of Luke chapter 2, let me read them. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in a hurry. They found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Imagine all that she's pondering. She couldn't understand at first why Gabriel was there, what he was saying, what would be the mechanics of how this would happen that a virgin could give birth. She's alarmed. Zacharias is stunned so much so that he expresses doubt to Gabriel about this, and so he's stricken dumb. You've got Mary here now wondering at all the things that the shepherds are saying, pondering them in her heart. That means, that word literally means to converse, discuss, consider, or consult without a hostile intent. In other words, she's living in existence where she's having a lot of questions that no one's around to answer, and she's just having to figure them out. Ever been there? Ever been there? The Lord's leading you somewhere. You don't get it. You don't understand why. How is this going to happen? And all of the what ifs overshadow for you the what to's. And that's such a danger that we have. Then Jesus is dedicated in the temple in Luke 21 to 33. And Simeon said some amazing things about Jesus. And in verse 33, it says his father and mother were amazed at the things being said about him. Wonder, amazement, pondering, dumbstruck, conferring, trying to figure it out, singing the Magnificat. Zacharias giving his own psalm, being overtaken, shepherds rejoicing, angelic hosts rejoicing, proclaiming. And if there is a lesson here, Roman numeral one, which you may want to write in, is don't ring the wonder 
out of incarnational living. Don't wring it out. Don't make it mundane. This is a tremendous story. What you're living is a tremendous story. Your life matters to God. Don't wring the wonder out of this, that he would come to you and redeem somebody like you. And I'd look down right here where nobody was, so nobody would think I was aiming it at them. But it's the type of thing, Jesus would save me, knowing when he saved me, all the sins I would commit after he saved me. No prenups. He saved me. He redeemed me. Don't wring that wonder out of your life. But it's so easy to do. How do we do it? And there are going to be some fill-in notes here. One of the ways we wring the wonder out of it is we just never stop to imagine. How long has it been since you've read a Bible story? And rather than doing the daily bread kind of thing where you read it and you say, oh, that's nice, and you go on, you just stop and you say, what if I put myself in Mary's shoes? What would I be thinking? What would I be thinking if I was Peter sinking while walking on the water? What, what got me to the point where I'm sinking? What would raise me? What's, where do I lift my gaze as I fall? You know, what ultimately saves me? Stop. Imagine. Muse. Think. This means you take time with God. Devotions aren't an event on an agenda that you get out of the way. They're a relationship where you stop and you allow your mind to enter into the wonder of it all. We don't, we don't study deeply. We don't study so deeply that we're convinced of what we believe. I remember the first time that I preached the resurrection before my congregation years ago. And I insisted that I immerse myself in all of the literature of the skeptics that I could find to put my hand on. Because I knew I had to have intellectual integrity. And if I didn't hear the arguments of the skeptics, how could I say in any convincing fashion that I know what I know what I know? We have to study so deeply that we become convinced that it cannot be any other way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God will deliver us, but even if he does not, what's behind the even if he does not? That whole thought, even if he does not deliver us, was the thought that we've studied your religion. We know what you believe. And we know that yours leads to dead-end streets. The only one that doesn't is our faith in our God who has worked in history through countless testimonies of people who have followed him. He may not deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to your idols because we know your way can't be the way. Do we go that deep? Do we go that deep? If we don't, all of the wonder of sitting back and saying, I know this is true, is just wrung out of our existence. It really is. 
We don't accept what God is doing in our lives because, and here's a word that you can fill in, because it's inconvenient, difficult, or highly unusual. Don't we want to do stuff the easiest way possible? Doesn't that make sense? But sometimes the easiest way possible would have been to go to the north of Sinai rather than to go to a dead-end street where the Dead Sea is going to trap you with mountains on either side and an Egyptian army pursuing. That's stupid. <laughs> That's dumb. You've led us out here to die, to be killed by these Egyptians, Moses. He hears all the complaints. Listen, we have to be willing to do what is difficult, to do what's inconvenient. The fourth way we wring the wonder out of this is we refuse to accept that we're special to God. I don't want to get you puffy and proud, but I do want you to realize that you're a child of God. You're a saint. You're a holy one. You're going to be with him forever. He wants you. How cool is that? And then, fifth, once we become adults, we're adults the rest of our lives and I will never allow myself to be a child again. We are never children again. We keep wanting our kids to grow up and our kids keep wishing we could be more like kids. And we lose our connection. And all the wonder, we wring it out for our kids. Don't wring the wonder out of incarnational living. Second story is the story of Joseph. And this is pretty cool one too. The story of Joseph. I want you to look at all of the confusion that Joseph is dealing with. And here we need to go to Matthew chapter 1. So if you just want to spring over there so you can put a finger wherever I'm pointing you to. Matthew 1, 18 to um, 24. Let me read it to you. Joseph, Mary's husband, being a righteous... Well, we'll start at 18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, that's talking about sexually, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, he planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, that behold, a virgin will be with child, will bear a son, they'll call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, I want you to look at the confusion here. How would Joseph have responded? Guys, how would you have responded if you had gained knowledge that Mary was pregnant? What would you think? Now, you have to understand... They were betrothed, but they were also married. 
because the betrothal was a time of formal contracts. Families would put marriages together. They would come together, they would determine the dowry, they would write the terms. Sometimes the bride and groom had not even met each other. They were generally both teenagers. A girl could be married as young as 12 to 14. The boy was usually about five to eight years older than that. There are legends that say that Joseph was a lot older, but those legends occur hundreds of years after the scriptures, and we have no indication of that here. Okay? So, the marriages were arranged, the contract was drawn. Once it was signed and witnessed, they were officially married, but the ceremony would not occur for a year. Then you have the wedding feast, you have the great party, everybody assembles. At that point, the marriage is consummated, evidence on the sheet is presented to show that she was a virgin, and that's the way the story went. So they were betrothed, but the only way to get out of the betrothal, because they were regarded as married once betrothed, was to divorce. And adultery or fornication, and, and it would be adultery in this case because they were regarded as married, adultery was a grounds for divorce. And in fact, in Palestine at that time, it was regarded as a requirement that the groom divorce a spouse that had been found to be unfaithful. All right? So that's what's going on here. What would Joseph have experienced knowing this. First off, how did he find out? It doesn't even tell us. Doesn't that frustrate you no end? So many details the Bible doesn't give us. But the great thing about having a lack of detail is that you can more easily apply it to your life instead of applying it away. Does that make sense? There are a lot of reasons why God doesn't tell us everything. Because he wants to see you. He wants you to see you in the frame of the picture. Okay, so we've got this going on. How did he find out? And what were the logical implications? She had adultered him. She had betrayed him. How unexpected. How cruel. And who with? Or is that even really important? Who with? What matters was that she did it. But why? And in the midst of this devastation now, he has to work through, what do I do now? And how do I do it? This is tough. Joseph believed in the Torah. Okay? It says he was a righteous man. That means he followed the Torah. The Bible was God's word. He lived by it. Verse 19 said he was righteous, but he was not wanting to disgrace her. And he planned to send her away secretly. What? No vengeance? No guile? Really? Is that how you would react? Is that how I would react? I'm not sure that it is. And he may have felt those emotions. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. But he was also sensitive to Mary. It says he was not wanting to disgrace her. It wasn't that he just decided not to because it was a practical decision. The whole bent of his life was that he didn't want her to be disgraced. He wanted to deal with this privately. So he made a choice that was based upon his own wants because his wants were conformed to the image of Christ. Do you understand that? The person who says, Lord, I will obey you is the freest man in the world. You can do whatever you want because you are consigned to doing only what God wants. 
That is real freedom, and it's profound. He made a choice based on his own wants. He let go of the guile. Joseph was sensitive to Mary. He was sensitive to people. He wanted it to be taken privately. Matthew continues on, you know, when he had considered this. Now, something isn't right here, okay? Think about this. Angels don't just pop in on us. How many of you have seen an angel? I mean, other than your spouse. There you go. We just celebrated ours about two days ago. Our 33rd. But angels don't just pop in, announcing that God's going to somehow overshadow and impregnate a human being. You know, pagans might hold those myths. No, no, no. We, monotheists, we don't. Second thing is, is Savior. This is the bastard child of infidelity, and we're going to call him Yeshua. He's a Savior. The third, and it's the height of folly to assume that any kind of reliable guidance will occur during your sleep, isn't it? Isn't that just a little nuts? But I do want to ask you, let me take a quick rocket poll. How many of you have had the Lord talk to you while you're asleep and you're laying there next to your spouse, your spouse doesn't know you're awake, but the Lord is talking to you and you're hearing it and you're processing it? How many of you have had that happen at night? Yeah. It's all quiet, it's dark, you're alone with your thoughts, all the cares of the day are behind you. And it says here that Joseph arose from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. But prior to that, the Greek construction shows that Joseph had made a decision regarding Mary. But after he made his decision, he still remained open to the leading of the Lord. After he had formed his conclusions in the errorist tense, he would sleep on it, take action on the morrow, and he received his vision after his decision had been made. And he changed his decision. A lot of Christians are like concrete all mixed up and permanently set. Do you ever come to a decision and say, I'm not going back on it because it's a matter of integrity? Isn't it a matter of integrity to listen to the Lord? Isn't it? So Joseph's story teaches us, and here's your Roman numeral two, don't calm the confusion of incarnational living. How do we calm the confusion of incarnational living? We do it when we refuse to accept anything that is new and extraordinary. We're people of the book, and the book was written 2,000 years ago, and nothing has changed ever since. Well, the book isn't going to change. But as we live our lives, we will. Number two, we insist that God fit in our boxes. And three, we make the false assumption that the good life is the good life of a settler rather than the life of a pilgrim. 
We desperately want out of the wilderness, don't we? We want to settle down. We want life to be easy. We want it to be anticipated. But yet we're supposed to follow Jesus. And the Spirit blows where it wills. And we don't know where it's come from or where it's going. And so is everyone born of God. The third thing, the third story is this. Consider all the movements of Joseph's family. Joseph's family. There was a lot of movement in this story, okay? And Luke 1, 36 to 40, Mary, a pregnant virgin, she flees off to Elizabeth. That's 100 miles away. Plus she came back three months later, now six months pregnant, okay? What will her circle think? She's there for three months. Then Joseph has to make some determinations here. And he decides that we're going to relocate. We're going to use this opportunity of taxation to relocate the whole family to Bethlehem. Okay? Because when they went to Bethlehem, they stayed for a while before the wise men ever arose. Now, why would he relocate? I think he did this to protect Mary. I think he, people knew there would be a stigma. Let's, let's move six miles beyond Jerusalem. Let's go the 90 miles, four to seven day journey. And, and let's just start over, honey. You and I know what's real. We don't care what they think. Let's start in our ancestral home. So they're intending a permanent relocation. Now, he has the responsibility to his government. He has a responsibility to find a birthplace for this kid, which he was not able to really find. But then he carries the responsibility of the child's safety, and this leads to even more movement. And at a moment's notice, after the Magi arrived, he had to flee 200 miles to the border of Egypt, probably by caravan. But they had to hook up with the caravan because they left in the middle of the night. If Joseph had been warned, and then he had been warned that Herod is going to try and kill the child, do you want your neighbors seeing you pack up during the day and noting which way you headed out? No. The alarm came late in the night, and they got up, and they left. Thank God the Magi had brought gold. <laughs> Isn't that tremendous? Traveling money. Fantastic, the provision of God. Okay? So now they're going 200 miles to the border of Egypt, and then the largest Jewish community in Egypt was in Alexandria, which is probably where they ended up. That's another 300 miles on donkey back, walking, 500 miles. And then when they return. Joseph deduces and is later warned by the angel, and he goes into Galilee, into Nazareth from Egypt. Look at all of the movement in rapid succession over a period of a very short time. Sleepless nights, concerns, flight, powerlessness, just running for your life, running to save your reputation running to save your wife's reputation, running to fulfill the law's demands of the government of Caesar. And this is where I get to Roman numeral three, and you'll want to fill it in. Don't tame 
the terror of incarnational living. If these evasive movements tell us anything, it's like a ship tacking hard right, hard left because there are torpedoes in the water, right? You see them coming to your character and you're turning hard just to be able to avoid them. There are all kinds of evasive maneuvers here. And it's because any one of these things can kill you dead. But Joseph didn't tame the terror, he managed it. He didn't tell the lion to lay down in the corner. He ran from the lion, he adjusted, he listened to the Lord as he was doing it. So how do we try to tame the terror of incarnational living? Steve, I don't want to go out there. I, I don't want to take this risk. There's too much at stake. I feel the Lord calling me to do this, but I just don't feel comfortable doing it. It makes me so vulnerable. Listen, here's number one. We cannot rule out options based on the degree of difficulty. We just can't. Because the degree of difficulty is only the degree of difficulty for humanity. It's not the degree of difficulty for God. Are you going to live His life or yours? Don't rule out things based on the degree of difficulty. Another way we try to tame the terror is we weigh radical obedience on the scales of reputation or personal acceptance. Come on. What was Jesus' reputation? They ruined Him. But they didn't. But they didn't. Third, we refuse to take the steps we know we should take for fear of the consequences. <laughs> what are the consequences of not living for God? What do we miss? The final point is story four, the shepherds, Elizabeth and Mary. And we've talked about all the joy in this story. And here's Roman numeral four, all right? After looking at the joy of the heavenly hosts, by the way, the captain of the Lord's host was probably the pre-incarnate Christ. <laughs> so this was his army. And they were hanging with him <laughs> at his human birth. And uh, don't you love it at the top of the tree? You have this wonderfully feminine, cute little angel that adorns the top, rather than a Schwarzenegger type, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> this was the Lord's host. This was an army. This was a security detail that was there. And these guys got rowdy, all right, when, when Jesus was born. And the shepherds got rowdy. And Elizabeth. Uh, got rowdy. John the Baptist at the age of three months in the womb got rowdy. All right? That should say something about abortion in two. Mary's Magnificat. My soul does magnify the Lord. And this is number four. You're going to say, this is pretty pathetic, Steve, that you couldn't come up with a better alliteration. But here it is. Don't chuck the cheer. <laughs> Don't chuck the cheer of incarnational living. Really? Don't chuck the cheer? Yeah, sorry, sorry. I was going to say don't mitigate the mirth, but I thought, eh, that's probably prideful. 
So at any rate, mitigate, what's that mean? So at any rate, don't chuck the cheer. So how do we chuck the cheer of incarnational living? The first is this, we take far too little time counting our blessings. Far too little time. Imagine if the sun only came up once every six months. Wouldn't it be pretty special? Wouldn't you rise to see the sunrise? But we get it every day. And two, we too seldom consider the Lord's superintendency of our lives. And because of that, as you're filling in your notes, we, got caught, we get caught up in circumstances from a purely horizontal point of view. How much better to rise above it and see as God sees because we're spending time with Him every day. Does this help? Don't chuck the cheer. Live the life. You've got models. Now you know how to do it. Mom and Dad, Joseph and Mary, they've been there. They've shown us. Let's do what they do. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all that it means to us. Thank you for these people who modeled the life so that we can follow. Lord, help us to purpose from this day to live differently, to live the way you would have us live, and to allow your life to be incarnate through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.